from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Dr. William Smith a Baha'i and Executive Director of the Center for Diversity in the Communication Industries at Emerson College. Among his many accomplishments is his founding a video film and multimedia company called Comtel Productions, founding a nonprofit organization called Pupil of the Eye, Vision for Unity in Education, and writing and producing the award-winning documentary film The Invisible Soldiers, Unheard Voices, which aired on PBS. And now he is working on a memoir called Remembering the Pupil of the Eye, Stories of Faith, Race, and Patriotism. In my first interview with Smitty, back in February 2007, he described his growing up in Greenfield, South Carolina, and his encounter with the Baha'i faith. You can find the interview on my website at baha'iperspective.com. I start this interview by asking Smitty to tell us what happened after becoming a Baha'i at the age of 18. Well, you know, it's um, really interesting as, as I think about that because I've been actually writing a, a book and I've been working on it for quite some time. One of the parts of that book, it's sort of it's autobiographical actually and talks about when I first became a Baha'i and, and some of the things that I got involved with. And actually, I became a Baha'i because I'd heard about the faith in high school. That summer, after I graduated high school, I met some Baha'i youth who had come to my town as part of a summer service project. They were working at this church that I uh, was a member of. They came there to help tutor kids. We ran a tutoring program. This was the 64 Civil Rights Act called for the integration of the public schools, and the city that I lived in had a graduated integration program. And some of these Baha'i youth came down to uh, tutor in the school, to tutor kids who were going to be integrating schools in the fall. It was really a fascinating summer because it was, if you will, uh, a time of my actually... Uh, coming into new worlds and discovering new possibilities. I remember so clearly that one of the uh, people who came uh, is a man who is uh, still my mentor, and he doesn't like for me to <laughs> refer to him as a mentor because he's a chief many. That makes me seem really old. <laughs> and I say, Richard, you are old. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, that person is Richard Thomas, who's Professor Emeritus in the History Department at Michigan State University. It was a fascinating time because 
Richard was one of the first people, he not was one of, he was the first person that I heard the term black history. I was fascinated. He was telling me, telling not just me, but other young people who were in my um, group of friends about the great universities at Timbuktu and Cordova. And, I mean, this is just stuff we'd never heard of down in Greenville, South Carolina. He was an interesting guy. He was, Richard is, actually, he was just a little slimmer than he is now, but he's a, by, I'm a fairly big guy, so he's, I won't say he's diminutive, but he's a smallish guy, real dark skin, and he wears these thick, thick, like one-inch Coke bottle glasses. And at the time, he had just, I think he'd been out of the Marine Corps for a short time, maybe a year or two. He's also a martial arts expert. So there was just all this fascinating stuff about this little guy (laughs) who came into town with these Baha'is talking about black history. And we used to have these classes in the uh, old colored library in Greenville, which was on Mac B Avenue. He would hold these little classes for us, uh, actually in the library on uh, black history. It was just so interesting. The fact that the Baha'i faith had empowered him in a lot of ways to really aggressively explore that history and share it and and talk to us about it, it was fascinating. What a time of discovery that was. How would you say the Baha'i faith influenced his perspective on black history? The Baha'i faith, uh, essentially the teaching that Noble have I created, sets the marker for who we are as human beings and and empowers everybody to explore the humaneness. That's just an empowering concept. And and, and, uh, I think he and and, um, other black Baha'is immediately identify that element in the Baha'i teachings. I mean, I think that's one of the things that was attracted to me even that the premise is that there's a place at the table for everybody and that everybody must be at the table in order for us to even have this meal, to have this sharing that is we're all important elements of the of the human family. It's a different spin, it's a different positioning of who we are or who he was and who I am as I've come to be strengthened in my own humaneness, if you will, which includes being a person of color, being black, being of African descent. Certainly he came into the community with that feeling. He projected that. As we're talking, I'm trying to finger here a little segment of something that I had written about meeting Richard. I thought it might be interesting to to share uh, as we talk. This is a manuscript that, as a friend of mine so wisely Inform me, Smitty is when it's published as a book, right now you're working on a manuscript, buddy. And this is true. The manuscript is Remembering the Pupil of the Eye Stories of Faith, Race, and Patriotism. It's autobiographical in nature. It gives me an opportunity to relive just a lot of really uh, wonderful experiences and discoveries that I had early on in my life, including ones like uh, meeting Richard Thomas and some of the other 
Baha'i who became lifelong friends that I met at that time. Let me just share this little thing here. Now, I was saying to you as I was speaking just a minute ago about what was going on in, uh, in Greenville. And at the time, I'd been offered a, a scholarship to go to Wake Forest College. It's one of the first blacks. There were three of us who went there to integrate the, the football program back in 1964. Uh, so there was a lot of integrative activities going on back in that period. In Greenville, uh, as I said, we were preparing for the DSEG that was going to take place as a result of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And here, Springfield Baptist Church, and I'm just going to read a little excerpt because this deals with my meeting Richard and so forth. Springfield Baptist Church served as a staging site for preparing the miniature heroes for their roles in integrating previously all-white schools. And the little miniature heroes I'm referring to, my younger brother was one of them who was thrown into the integrative fray in first grade. But the Greenville Baha'i community, sensing an opportunity to put their beliefs in social justice and equity to work in supporting the work toward school integration, requested that one of the many summer service youth programs that were a tradition of sorts in the Baha'i community take place in Greenville. A part of the work service for the small core of uh, local and visiting Baha'i teenagers and young adults would be to serve with others as tutors to my brother Rick and his fellow soon-to-be many freedom fighters. The tutors would work with the tiny torchbearers in fine-tuning their reading and math skills. The daily three-hour tutoring sessions were held in the basement of Springfield Church. Rick, who is my brother, told me as an adult that this preparation contributed to his sense of readiness and his having excelled throughout his elementary and high school years. He received a scholarship to Brown University where he majored in electrical engineering and later went on to receive an MBA from the Fuqua School of Business at Duke University. True to the Baha'i M.O., a racially diverse group of six youth and adult and young adults ages 18 to 25 arrived in Greenville to join the two local Baha'i youth, Ricky Abercrombie and Buddy Glenn. They would join with high school and college-age youth from within Greenville for the tutoring sessions. Three of the visitors would become lifelong friends. Doug Rue, a smart, brash, white student from Kansas who had an incredible intensity for promoting social justice and will later become a co-owner of United Press International and several television stations. And John Bojack Mangrum, a gifted poet and pugilist, later ranked third in the middleweight division from Detroit who would become an undercover narcotics cop before re retiring and dedicating himself to the nonprofit group Responsible Teen Fathers, which he co-founded. And my mentor in blackness, Richard W. Thomas, whose thick Coke bottle, bottom glasses, and erudite manner predicted his incredible grasp of African history, but belied his practice knowledge of the martial arts. It was from Richard Thomas that I first heard the phrase black history, 
as he shared stories of the ancient African civilizations in Cordova and Timbuktu, where whenever there was downtime and tutoring or other service activities. I love the dimensions and views of the world, richest nonstop mini lectures provided. Association with these visitors who were becoming friends afforded new vistas of what past events and future possibilities. It also afforded a unique perspective of the teachings of Baha'u'llah, the founder of their faith, and to whom they reference as having influenced their perspectives. I'd intensified my investigation of his stupendous claim and realized that this truly was the day of the one fold and one shepherd and the fulfillment of the covenant of the Lord's prayer, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on heaven as it is in earth. I joined the Baha'i faith July 19, 1964. Anyway, that was just a little reference back to that particular time when I was 18. Right. <laughs> and had just really intensified my investigation of the Baha'i faith and, mm-hmm. and became a Baha'i. Now, you said you went to Wake Forest. What was that no, like? Of course. That was an interesting experience, to <laughs> say the least. There were some uh, tremendous battles at Wake Forest. Actually, it was uh, this whole understanding in this new light on who I felt, who I come to know that I am as a human being that allowed me to, to really stand up to some intense challenges while there. Uh, of course, it was not a huge welcome mat on the campus uh, for us. Uh, I mean, there was a cross burned in front of our mm. dorm and all that kind of stuff. But interestingly, I had some serious problems with the coaching staff, which basically dealt around issues of race and place. I had a a real run-in with the freshman football coach who dealt with a matter that seemed to be none, well, in some instances, people would think, well, it's not really consequential, but had deeply to do with a matter of principle, and that was basically my name. That sounds maybe sounds strange, but I'll, I'll explain it. Again, let me just I'll grab a little piece here from, from this manuscript that talks about this experience. After uh, the morning sprints, this was doing the uh, football practices before school had started. The athletes had shown up early to, to begin practice uh, for football. But in the morning, in the morning sprint, a short, quick-footed speech from Nashua, New Hampshire, Daryl Buck, and I dazzled our teammates with blistering times in the 50-yard sprints. We ultimately tied or beat one another in all the sprints, leaving the other players yards behind. During the lunch break as I entered the cafeteria, the freshman squad coach, Joe Madden, stopped his conversation with Jeff Underwood, a red-shirt senior who was assisting with the freshman squad. Willie, that was a good show in the sprints this morning. Add a boy, he offered. Thanks, Coach. I smiled in acknowledgement of his compliment before adding with an equally broad smile, but I'd rather be called either Smitty or Butch. I don't like being called Willie. 
Well, Willie, he replied, oh, all God. the butchers are taken because we have Butch Henry and Butch Matheny, so you'll have to be Willie. Still smiling, I offered, then Smitty will do. Everybody calls me Smitty if they don't call me Butch. The square jaws of Madden's face tightened and turned red. His short crew cut seemed to bristle as he took a couple of steps closer to me and looked up with steely blue eyes and said, You are Willie. I looked from Coach Madden to Jeff, who tried to muster a sympathetic expression. I looked again back at Coach, whose face was still bright red with anger. I walked away. Things seemed to go downhill in the afternoon session, which took place in full pads. At the calisthenics, the same sprints in which I excelled in the morning received only a mediocre showing in full pads. The lack of strength conditioning during the summer showed as those who were several yards to the re in the unpadded morning sprints were within a few feet of the lead in the first few sprint legs and gradually took the lead and expanded it in subsequent legs. I could see the smiling satisfaction of several of the white players as they loudly congratulated their brethren who had beaten me in the sprints. It was clear that an unspoken black and white tally of performance was being taken. I made a mental vow that in subsequent practices I would never lose another sprint leg. Due to circumstances with a much greater implication than football, the vow would not last 24 hours. In fact, its lack of fulfillment began immediately after the sprints. Coach Madden called for all the players to circle around him. He instructed the team that we would be dividing into groups by position, quarterbacks, running backs, receivers, offensive linemen, defensive linemen, linebackers, and defensive backs. He named the assistant coaches who would take charge of each group. Then he shouted, All right, men, let's have a good practice. He asked the offensive linemen to head over to the blocking sleds. The large, heavy, sweating players began a slow waddle toward the sleds mounted with blocking dummies. All right, quarterbacks, down to the 20-yard line came the next order. As soon as I started to jog toward the 20-yard line, Madden's voice boomed. Willie, where are you going? I kept jogging. Willie, you hear me? You're not a quarterback. Get over there with the running backs, he screamed. I continued my jog picking up speed. Willie! Willie! I kept running. The screaming had stopped as I turned to look back near the 20-yard line. I could see Jeff and the other three quarterback prospects, Butch Mad Baby Nevers, Phil Woods, and a third player, whose name I forget, jogging to the 20-yard line. When Jeff arrived, he motioned for me to come over to him. Smitty, Coach Madden wants you to go over and practice with the running backs. Then they tell you your speed can't be wasted under no center. You got to be footloose and fancy free, baby. Jeff's offering was a most worthy effort to put a positive spin on events. Noble have I created thee. I had to move beyond his spin. Jeff, it ain't the position. It's the name. 
I told him with respect that my name is not Willie. If he had called me Smitty, I would have turned on a dime. I'm not Willie, and I'm not going to answer to it. I said with a calm but firm resolve. Okay, Smitty, Jeff said with a smile while emphasizing the name. I'm asking you to go over and join the running backs. Great, man. I'm gone. I ran my head-high opening day starting lineup announcement-style jog toward the practice area for running backs. Anyway, it was one of the first things that I captured when I became a Baha'i about my own being was my nobility as a human being. Just that little piece of information and spiritual insight into my true worth and, and purpose really afforded me the the opportunity to essentially buck this football coach. And even to this day, as I see my friend uh, Bob Grant, who was my roommate and who was there and who went on, Bob went on to a, an illustrious uh, football career, played in two Super Bowls and was a rookie of the year for the Baltimore coach and all that stuff when he came out of college. But Grant still chuckles. He says, man, I don't know how to help. How the hell, you're a kid. I mean, you you, just, you stood up to the coach, man. Mm-hmm. Like, what's up with that, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought you were a bad dude. <laughs> but it wasn't about being a bad dude. It was really being about a, a person who had come to know, who had been given just a little piece of real insight to his spirituality and his being, and who just wasn't going to take anything less from this particular person about, you know, who I was. So in, in the Baha'i faith, there are, are, are prayers and there are statements about making a, a gnat into an eagle and things like that. Well, for me in my little insignificant life experience in, in the scheme of all big things, that was my moment to go from gnat to eagle in terms of just addressing that situation, because in the overall scheme of things, it's certainly not a big thing, but to me, in my own life and in my little, my life's experience, it was just so uh, empowering to have that insight based on a simple quotation or a simple announcement, a pronouncement from Baha'u'llah that who we are, noble have I created thee. One of my big challenges at Wake Forest was uh, dealing with that mm-hmm. kind of a situation. I mean, it, it went it went on and on from there. I mean, it went it went further down. You know, I was able to actually deal with it all because of just the strength of understanding who I am as a human being. I didn't finish Wake Forest. I left there and went to work as an organizer. Actually, I went down to the nonviolence camp down at Dorchester, Georgia, that Dr. King SELC had organized. I went there to be trained in nonviolent tactics, but I stayed through the whole training, but I didn't adopt them. One of my weaknesses spiritually is was not being able to really internalize that doctrine, which is uh, the people who did internalize and practice that doctrine for people of incredible 
moral courage and strength. And sadly, I, I wasn't one of them because I couldn't handle it. Uh, Smitty, I remember our last interview, you had said the same thing, that you were the fighting kind versus the turn-the-other-cheek kind, and you really admired others at that time. I don't know if it was, you mentioned your sister or somebody? My sisters, yeah. Yeah, yeah, my, yeah. both my sisters, yeah. That were able to, to do it, and you really had admired that. I wasn't able to. It could have made me a, a better person, but mm-hmm. I didn't, and we don't always excel at all things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and, and I it's, all, it's all in due time, right? It's like fine wine. It's yeah. it, 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 all, yeah, all right, in due right. time, right? Right. What was the next step for you then? Well, to I went back to Greenville, actually, and I worked for a short time with the uh, Black Awareness Coordinating Committee of South Carolina. And then I left and went up to Chicago to actually work in a summer project. As I said, the at that time, and even now, there are Baha'i youth do year, a year of service. At that time, the concept was not a year of service, but it was certainly a summer of service, so a lot of Baha'i youth went off on summer service projects, and I went to Chicago to work on a summer service project, much like the one that the youth would come to Greenville, the Baha'i youth, to work on. I went to work on the south side of Chicago, helped run a day camp uh, for little kids. We ran in the, the Trianon Ballroom. It was a project that was supported by the Woodlawn Organization, which was a local umbrella community organization, TWO. Under the auspices of TWO, we ran this little summer program for kids, and it was an academic and recreational program. I had a wonderful time doing that. That was a really interesting experience because there was so much going on in Chicago at that time. Dr. King was bringing the movement to Chicago. There was a lot of turmoil. That was when the gangs in Chicago, the street gangs, the Blackstone Rangers and others were beginning to reach their zenith in terms of power. It was an interesting place to be. We had the protection of protection, I should say the sanction of the Blackstone Rangers to run the day camp, which was great because... They knew who we were, and a lot of the little kids we had were actually their little sisters and brothers. So we had no problem going through the neighborhoods, though we were not from the neighborhood, picking up the kids in the morning and walking the eight blocks or so to the Trianon Ballroom while we had the day camp. So I did that for the summer, cognizant of the fact that my status had gone from a student deferment in terms of the draft, to 1AO, which was a first available, and the O being objector because I filed for conscientious objective status, which Baha'is under the draft laws were allowed to apply for. At the time, it was rumored that all these cockamamie schemes of how to avoid the draft, one of them was supposedly, theoretically, if you stayed in a particular place for 90 days, then you contacted your local draft board, your original draft board, which mine was Greenville, South Carolina. 
and inform them that you were in that particular city and if they would forward any information or records pertaining to selected service to the local draft board because that's where you resided. And then theoretically you had 90 days that you could be there before your number would surface again locally, at which time you should move then to another city <laughs> and repeat the process. That was all theory, <laughs> because after I, I left Chicago and moved to uh, Michigan, to Pontiac, Michigan, and got a job working in Pontiac in the, at General Motors in the truck and coach plant, and then on the weekends spending time in Detroit in the community, which is actually where one of the reasons I went to that area was that's where Richard Thomas and John Mangrum Bojack, that's where they lived. And there was always something hopping in Detroit in terms of issues, in terms of working for access and equity and so forth. So I moved to that area and, well, not promptly, but shortly thereafter, received the draft notice that I was drafted into the Army. So they didn't accept your conscientious objector? You're still drafted? As a conscientious objector, you're drafted. You serve as a non-combatant. All COs go to medical training. You, you become a medic. I was trained as a medic in the Army. and went to listen to Vietnam and served as a infantry platoon medic in the 1st Infantry Division. I didn't bear any arms, but mm -hmm. I was <laughs> right there, you know. Oh, in the front lines. Uh, it was interesting, but I had a, a philosophy about that. Hey, everybody I see getting shot, they all have guns. So having <laughs> guns doesn't mean <laughs> you're not going to get shot. It simply means you can shoot back, and uh, I prefer not to shoot. The fact is that war brings out the bestiality in man. I had a wonderful opportunity to, to meet a lot of Baha'is when I was in Vietnam. There were actually Baha'is in the village that we were based at the uh, 1st Battalion, 2nd Infantry. It was an old town called Phuc Vinh, and there were a complement of Baha'is there. And then while I was there, actually, I had the good fortune of getting a leave uh, and going to Saigon to the National Baha'i Convention which was an extraordinary experience. And there were just thousands and thousands of Baha'is in Vietnam. It was wonderful. There was an ethnic group called the Charms, which were down in the Mekong Delta, which there was an incredibly large Baha'i population. And there were quite a few people from the Charms who came to the convention. The convention then... Uh, the public came and leading figures came, religious figures. In fact, uh, Thichy Kong, who was the anti-war Buddhist monk, was at the convention. And I sat actually a few seats from him. Other than that, it was not a happy place to be. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> it was not a good place to be. So what happened um, after your military service? Immediately after I got back to the state. Of course, the war, the anti-war movement was very strong at the time. So was the civil rights movement. There was just a lot going on, a lot of change in the air. I remember in the spring, I came back and I was stationed at Fort Seal in 
Lawton, Oklahoma. I remember getting a midnight phone call from one of my dear friends who was at South Carolina State uh, University. This was when the Orangeburg Massacre took place when they shot down the, the black kids at South Carolina State. And he was actually literally there, was almost shot, in fact. He called me in the middle of the night fearful and saying he had to leave town. They were killing black kids, and it was, it was crazy. Mm-hmm. And I remember wiring him money the next day so that he could get out of Dodge, so he could leave town. There was a lot of turmoil. Uh, and then when I was discharged from the Army in 1968, he and I actually rendezvoused, because he, he and I went to high school together. we become Baha'is together, actually. I went back to Greenville and worked again for the uh, Black Awareness Coordinating Committee of South Carolina and doing community organizing, voter registration. That was a real test to my being a part of the Baha'i community because there were real challenges relative to obedience and to laws. The Black Awareness Coordinating Committee was not a nonviolent group. It was decidedly a self-defense group. There were issues there because we were we were breaking the law because the center cached arms and there were a lot of issues around that and uh, there was another point of growth for me in, in the Baha'i community in that the National Spiritual Assembly of Baha'is actually sent one of its members down to Greenville to talk to some of us who were Baha'i youth who everybody in the Black Winners Gunning to me of course were not Baha'i but there were some of us and who were in one of leadership roles they sent someone to talk to us to say, hey, can't be uh, cacheting these weapons and all this. You're breaking the law, blah, blah. Well, we weren't hearing it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you don't know what's going on, so you got you need to leave here. Mm-hmm. Actually, the National Assembly didn't give up on us in terms of the people and kept trying to say, hey, well, let's talk about alternatives. There are other ways of approaching this. And in fact, that led to a, they convened a conference where they invited a number of us, uh, unbeknownst to me at the time, until I got to this little conference that what I was engaged with and challenged with in terms of dealing with issues of social justice. Uh, there were a lot of other young Baha'is who Experiencing the same challenges. Basically, the National Baha'i Assembly had invited all these people from all over the country. Mm-hmm. I met some really interesting folk there. In fact, that's why I met my best friend, Bob Henderson, for the first time uh, at that little conference where we were discussing the question of how do you reconcile the need or the feeling to respond to injustices, but to do so within the spirit of the Baha'i faith. It's really funny. All while I was in Vietnam, I never thought about at all any kind of aggression in terms of shooting anybody. Never did. I didn't carry a weapon. I was unarmed even when I was in a 
combat platoon. Never thought about it. But when I came back to this country, just the fact of the overpowering sense of inequity and unfairness and mistreatment made me go to a frame of mind that, hey, I will not be offensive, but I will definitely be defensive in terms of any aggression toward me or my family or whatever. All of us came together at this conference. And I say conference, it was sort of a gathering. It wasn't really a organized conference with a big, long agenda, but it was like a talking session, time for people to talk and get out their thoughts and their feelings and to explore the, the issues and how we can effectively deal with issues and how issues can be dealt with in an organized fashion, the end game being to affect change in policy and laws as opposed to immediate circumstance. That was a wonderful experience. Truly deepened my respect for the uh, administrative order of of the Baha'i faith, the national governing body, really having enough interest and care to actually round up and invite these young people in from all over the country and engage with them in dialogue, conversation, consultation about how to address the issues and seeking to do so in a constructive way from a spiritual perspective. It was truly amazing. Again, it was one of those little points that different people in life have markers that say, hmm, boy, this is an important thing in my life and help shape my perspective and my approach to, to doing things. Mm-hmm. And certainly that situation was, was one of such. And in fact, it was when I met my friend who was going to go to the University of Massachusetts, which is how I came to go to the University of Massachusetts, <laughs> because he and I struck a fast friendship, and I applied and wound up going to UMass as a result of that gathering, wanting to continue to plot the way of dealing with issues with some of the young people who were at that conference, several of whom actually went to UMass from there. So what was your UMass experience like? It was great. Well, first day, it was great. It was, it, was, it was better than great. It was incredible. First of all, that's why I met my wife, which is really probably the coolest thing that happened to me when I was there. But a lot of the really wonderful things. This whole idea of uh, how to plan for and strategize around how to make systematic change some of those very things that we talked about at that conference, I was able to pursue while I was at UMass. And actually, in a lot of ways, realize uh, just in terms of being able to uh, be of service, which to me is the most best fulfillment to me of life, is just really being of service to people or situations. It's just fulfilling a purpose in my mind and, and being in UMass. I was able to do that start doing that, which I've tried to work hard to continue since that time. UMass is is the bomb. (laughs) UMass is really a great institution for me.
what did you study at UMass? I studied English and education. I wanted to be a filmmaker, but my and, and I did actually take visual media courses, but the most of my focus because I was trying to the quickest way I thought to have some direct impact immediately was through education. So I did sense the power of media, which I've sort of eventually came back full circle to, which is, uh, of course, a tool for implementing learning and knowledge. But my focus was alternative education, and I had the bounty of working at one of the well, the first alternative school of note, which was Hall of Prep in New York City. I worked there. I actually did a year-long administrative internship there with the headmaster, which helped orient me toward developing strategies for alternatives for inner-city education, particularly for young people who were totally bypassed either through their own doing or the doing of the system, who were not a part of the mainstream. In fact, it led to building a school there in the Pioneer Valley area, well, actually in Springfield, Sassy Preparatory School, which we ran for over three and a half years. But it catered to long-term suspendees and dropouts and students who generally having a difficult time in their traditional educational classes and so forth. We took them on in a private setting, alternative school setting. And some of our former students may be hearing this broadcast because some of them went from high school dropouts to being school teachers, and a couple of them teach in the Springfield Public Schools <laughs> now. They haven't retired. It could be. Jerome Bass and Eddie Donawa. Eddie, actually, Eddie, head of the art. Department at, I think, Kennedy Junior High, one of those schools here. Jerome taught math and commerce. You worked at Harlem Prep for a while, and then you did some work in the Springfield area. Uh, what happened after that? I finished my doctoral work and moved to eastern Massachusetts. Came over to run a program called the Interdistrict Transfer Program which was about hiring teachers and professional staff to work in suburban schools, actually people of color, because of the METCO program, which, as you know, is the nation's oldest voluntary busing program. It's over 40 years old. Back in the early 70s, we were trying to help bring minority staff to some of the suburban school districts where those students were being bused. I was in, in public education for a while, and I was principal in the city of Boston for a while, and then in, out in the suburbs, and then uh, took an entrepreneurial turn into back to media and got into the television and media business, which I have been involved in some form or the other for the last 20 plus years. Now how did that happen? How did that turn occur? One day actually I looked up and I had four kids and I was a school principal and I said, hmm, this is not going to work. <laughs> I had some opportunities entrepreneurially and got involved with some friends developing uh, and applying for television licenses and we were 
fairly successful at it and spent some years in the television business, the president and general manager of stations. And then I started a film company, film and video company that I ran for about uh, 16 years. Doing a lot of pro bono work. I had a little cause media nonprofit company that I started to, to uh, produce media for nonprofit organizations for free. And I did that for a while and then was invited to be the founding executive director of the Center for Diversity four years ago, which is what I'm still doing. Diversity in the communication industry at Emerson College. The mission of the center is to enhance diversity at the institution itself and the industries to which the institution has direct ties. Emerson is the oldest school of communication in the country. That's all we do. We do arts and communication, nothing else. (laughs) Uh, And the college does it extremely well and as such uh, has a tremendous presence through its alumni in those industries. The idea being that it's important at this point that, as we all know, this society, uh, the whole paradigm is totally shifted. Those without benefit of a, a multicultural experiences or perspectives will be in last place as we go into this century. So we're trying to do everything that we can to afford students at that college as well as to connect with corporate entities that share those values and uh, have a collaboration with the institution and those and those businesses. That's what my work is presently. You were involved in some documentary projects. I was wondering if you could talk about them a little bit. When I had the uh, Comtel Productions, we, we produced a lot of programs for television and for a few documentary films. Some of the television stuff was entertainment. At one point, this was um, a while back, but we did uh, a lot of programs around storytelling. There was this fabulous woman named Jackie Torrance who was a the queen of uh, American storytelling. And we did a number of television programs uh, with her couple of several special programs, national special programs around storytelling. And then later on, I was involved in doing some documentary films around issues of race and particularly uh, the military, World War II. One was a PBS film, The Invisible Soldiers, Unheard Voices, which interestingly, in view of the um, new Spike Lee film, I'm starting to get all these calls now, people are saying, hey, tell us about the 92nd Infantry, which is a centerpiece, I guess, of the miracle in Santa Ana. That's coming full circle again, which is good. I've been involved in doing a little filmmaking, not a great deal, but a little. Smitty, what would you say your plans for the future are? What Do you see anything that you still want to do that you haven't done yet? Yep, finish this manuscript. (laughs) 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 That'd be really nice. That's my big thing right now. We're doing some interesting work, actually, at 
in the Center for Diversity, one of the things that we've done is um, we have this model called Campus Conversations on Race, and it's an exciting model where we it trains students. It's actually a formal training program where students are trained and certified as co-facilitators to conduct peer conversations on race with their peers. We've created the Campus Conversation on Race College Network, which has right now 14 colleges engaged in using the model. So uh, that's I'll be spending quite a bit of time trying to manage that or create the resources to manage it because it's taken off much faster than the center can handle because that's not our prime that wasn't our primary mission but it's a concept that's really growing leaps and bounds so we're trying to figure a way to efficiently export the model and get more people engaged so that the proliferation of the concept does not rest totally at the center for diversity because we just we get other things we, we need to be doing. But it's a wonderful program. There's some colleges over in Western Mass. Mass College of Art is in the network. as a Springfield College. In fact, we just got an inquiry from Amherst College to uh, join the network. So as soon as we get some time to get people who can work with those places, we will... They will be joining. <laughs> this is something that's uh, very exciting. In fact, well, let me let me say this. There's a quick way to find out. Uh, CampusConversationsOnRace.org. CampusConversationsOnRace. That phrase, CampusConversationsOnRace.org. The website talks all about it. Well, that's why they have those websites, isn't Okay. Well, yeah. Smitty, thank you so much for sharing with us your story uh, and your life and what you do. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. William Smith, a Baha'i and executive director of the Center for Diversity in the Communication Industries at Emerson College. Among his many accomplishments is his founding a video, film, and multimedia company called Comtel Productions founding a nonprofit organization called Pupil of the Eye, Vision for Unity in Education, and writing and producing the award-winning documentary film The Invisible Soldiers, Unheard Voices, which aired on PBS. He's now working on his memoir called Remembering the Pupil of the Eye, Stories of Faith, Race, and Patriotism. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
created thee. Yet thou hast abased thyself. Rise then
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.